Welcome to Veterinary Advice, Animal News, and Views, the place for pets. And they're people who love them. Aw, he's so soft. Come here, come here, boy. Here is your host, practicing veterinarian, veterinary news network reporter, and host of the popular YouTube show, The Web DVM, Dr. Roger Welton. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Veterinary Advice, Animal News and Views. I'm your host, Roger Welton, coming to you from the Florida Space Coast. Thank you very much for joining me, as always. Tonight is a very important topic, folks. Um, spinal injuries, prevention and treatment options. Also, we're going to talk about recognizing spinal injuries, spinal disease. It may not seem that relevant to a lot of you out there because you may have never experienced a pet with a spinal injury or a spinal disease. Um, some of you currently have pets that don't do not have any back problems, and so this might be very foreign to you. Maybe some may seem something very abstract, something you don't have to worry about. It's something that you know, one of those things that happens to someone else's pet. But believe me when I tell you, this is a very very common problem in dogs and cats, back issues. And there are several issues that we can see, and we'll get into some of those. And the the most important thing I want to I want you to take from tonight is recognizing when there are problems with the back because no matter what we're talking about here, and again, we're going to go through a few examples, but no matter what we're talking about, the sooner you have these things seen, the much more able we are to treat them with minimal invasiveness and, of course, as little cost to the owner as possible. But the longer we wait, the longer these things go unrecognized, the worse things will tend to be in terms of being able to treat them without major inv- uh, invasive means and, of course, a lot of cost to the owner. So please stick around, ladies and gentlemen, even if it, it, it still doesn't kind of register that this is a very important thing for you to know about. It is relevant. Um, you know, by all means, this is something everybody needs to be educated about. Just to put it in perspective, uh, there was one week, uh, you know, less than a month ago where it was raining back injuries. I mean, in, in a one-week span, I saw, you know, 10 cases, and, and while that's unusual, or an unusually high number, um, it's not unusual for me to get three to five new cases of back injuries a week. And so, you know, when you factor in that I had a, a week there where I had 10 injuries and and um, on average I see three to five a week, I mean, this is something that is real and uh, something we all need to pay attention to. We also have two email questions uh, this evening. A little light on the email questions, but uh, I'd like to get into the first one of those before we delve into our topic this evening. It was sent in by Jason. No, um, no place of origin here. No, no domicile listed. Just Jason. Here's his question. Hi there. Recently, my female had four kittens. Three out of four are perfectly fine. However, looks like the last one to come out has a defect. It keeps rolling around and struggles to keep its head up. All the legs work fine, but it just doesn't stay upright. Is there a serious problem with it? And if so, what can be done about it? Also, there the other three's eyes are all open, but this little one's hasn't yet open. Okay, so it's pretty obvious to me what's going on with this kitten. Um, there, it was born with a condition known as cerebellar hypoplasia, and basically, the cerebellum is an area of the brain that's responsible for motor coordination, motor skills, and the ability to orient oneself in space. And hypoplasia refers to the fact that it didn't fully develop while in utero. And the reason we see this happen in kittens is because mommy was likely infected with a virus called panleukopenia virus. Now, obviously, mommy didn't uh, isn't clinically sick, nor has she passed on the 
actual virus to her kittens as of right now, at least the date of this um the date of this email because I, I would basically Jason would have known if the kittens had panleukopenia virus they'd be severely severely ill. Um right now what we're seeing is that at this point in time probably mommy's milk is giving them protective antibodies to that panleukopenia virus she's carrying, but it seems to have unfortunately affected the brain development of this one particular kitty cat while uh she was still inside mommy and it you know it's something that we do see from time to time. The the good news is that some cats uh can develop enough motor coordination over time to overcome this to some degree. Now, we're not expecting miracles here. This kitty will never be right. In fact, there's a good chance that um, it may not even be right enough to have any sort of quality of life. Time will tell. Um, this kitten needs to be uh, nursed very, very carefully, um, likely bottle-fed because of the fact that it probably can't nurse on its own very well. It has to uh, have the genitalia stimulated, likely to uh, defecate and urinate and to do all the normal things. And those eyes should eventually open up, but everything's going to be a little slower than with the other kittens. Now, over time, because this kitten doesn't know any differently, um, the um, the imbalance that this kitten will have as long as one one day in the near future she can actually orient herself and be able to walk somewhat, um, there is the potential for some quality there. I have a particular friend. He's actually a board-certified surgeon, veterinary surgeon, that is. I've had on the show a couple times Dr. Jeff Christensen, who has a cat named Elvis. And Elvis he's had for years, and Elvis kind of looks like a drunken sailor when he's walking. It's almost quite humorous because, you know, Elvis doesn't seem to care. He will get from point A to point B. It just takes him a lot longer than your average cat. But Elvis is a happy boy. He eats, he purrs, he loves to be scratched, he loves to be pet. He just looks like he has uh, had one too many all the time. Uh, but the quality is good, and that's a case where you know the uh, enough cerebellar development enabled um, this cat to attain the ability to to get by. Of course, you know it's not stellar, but that's okay. It's part of Elvis's charm. And what I would what I would hope for this kitty cat is is the same could occur. But there's nothing really you can do to facilitate that process unfortunately we'll either reach that point or you won't um in the meantime all you can do is good nursing care to make sure the kitten is properly nourished um is moving its urine and bowels uh, not laying in the same place where it it uh, voids and and you know staying as clean as possible and you get it through this early stage and, and hope that at some point um it, it, the kitten can do a little better this kitten will never be a normal kitten though i want you to understand that um, so I wish you the best of luck on that one. So getting back to the back situation, let's talk about backs. Now, I'm not going to really get into every single incident we could see in the back in terms of, you know, getting in too in-depth on each thing. There's really two main two main things, maybe three, that I think that we should all be well-educated about. Um, the other ones I want to touch on, just to just let you understand um, exactly what can go wrong with the back, how many things that can go wrong with the spine and the spinal cord, and um, just kind of explain briefly what each one is. For the most part, though, I want to focus on about three of those. All right. And the first and most common is intervertebral disc disease. And that means that there's been a herniation or partial herniation of one or more discs. The cartilaginous, the intervertebral discs are cartilaginous discs that um, live between each verte uh, vertebral bone in the spine. And basically, it's there to pad the joint and give flexibility to the joint. Well, sometimes these discs can slip 
and they herniate up into the space of the spinal cord. They can compress the spinal cord and adjacent nerve root signatures and cause pain and even neuromuscular disuse. We'll get into that one uh, because that is probably our most common, uh, I, I would say, not probably, I would say by far our most common uh, from a clinical standpoint. Another fairly common one that we see actually more in big dogs than little dogs, but and we really don't really see in cats um, too, too typically, but uh, fibrocartilaginous embolism, FCE. Fibrocartilaginous embolism is interesting because it basically is a stroke of the back. Um, the spinal cord, just like any other living tissue in the body, is, is fed by blood supply. Without blood supply, any tissue dies. And the same goes for the spinal cord. So with fibrocartilaginous embolism, what happens is there's usually been chronic bad back. And a little, a little piece of intervertebral disc dislodges and gets stuck in a blood vessel that feeds or brings nourishment and blood to a, a certain segment of spinal cord. And depending on what that segment of spinal cord is responsible for innervating, um, any number of things can happen from uh, disuse to uh, you know bl bladders that don't work, colons that don't work, paralysis, partial paralysis. You know, a number of different things can occur depending on where the site of the embolism is, and we'll get into that a little bit more. There's another condition I see actually most commonly in little dogs, and you know, for some reason, the Italian greyhound seems uh, probably overrepresented in comparison to other breeds, in my experience. It's called GME, granulomatous meningoencephalopathy. It's a mouthful. All you need to remember is GME, and basically uh, this the, can can lead. The, the main cause for this is actually autoimmune. So basically, the body starts recognizing its central nervous system structures as foreign invaders, and the body mounts an immune response against the spinal cord tissue. And we call this type of disease where a body, the body's own immune system attacks itself. We call that autoimmune disease. And this could present as anything from you know, major severe fever, severe back pain, paralysis or partial paralysis, seizures. Often these dogs are inappetent and can even be pretty disoriented when they present. Um, another fairly, I don't want to say common condition, but increasing in commonality is degenerative myelopathy. Uh, degenerative myelopathy, we used to see years ago when I was still in vet school, we only really considered that a German shepherd disease. It's a degenerative spinal disease where the functional tissue of the spinal cord, starting from back near the tail, starts to just degenerate and disappear over time. And what you end up with is an increasing paralysis of the back legs that eventually makes its way forward to losing bladder and colon control and eventually the front legs. And it's not a good prognosis. Unfortunately, we're starting to see this one in other breeds. We're seeing it in boxers. I've even seen it in a Welsh corgi, which really surprised me. Um, it's kind of spilled out into uh, other breeds at this point. I'm sorry to say that, but uh, it's still not the most common thing to see, but um, I see enough cases that it's certainly worth mentioning. Then there's the two infectious causes. Um, infection, meaning bacterial infection, uh, there's a condition where we can see infection of the, of the intervertebral disc, and we call that discospondylitis. Sometimes that can infect uh, more than one disc and, and start to infect and, and invade adjacent bone, and that could present as pain, you know, with pain, fever, um, again, partial or complete paralysis, uh, seizures even in, in, in cases of discospondylitis. And then there's another um, 
infectious presentation of the back called meningitis. And meningitis basically is an infection of the uh, membranes that surround the spinal cord and brain tissue called the meninges, and we call that meningitis when there's an infection there. And that could present any number of ways, again, seizures, uh, back pain, neck pain, uh, paralysis, partial paralysis, uh, you know, a whole range of different signs. So you can see they, a lot of these diseases share signs in common, and that's why it's important for us to recognize disease of the back in general. I'm not trying to teach you how to be veterinarians and to necessarily treat these things, but what I really want to teach you is to recognize them so you can get them into us, uh, get your dogs and cats into us as soon as you possibly can when you recognize that there could be spinal disease. A lot of treating these things successfully is often time dependent, so we want to make sure you can get these guys to us as quickly as possible. So basically today we're going to talk about the, the, the three most common uh, incidents that I see in backs in practice. Um, and the first one is common to both cats and all breeds and sizes of dogs, and that's intervertebral disc disease. Um, I touched on this a little bit, obviously, but uh, let's get into into it in a little bit more uh, in-depth manner here. The typical presentation for intervertebral disc disease is in the early phases where the disc is starting to uh, to slip and the the whole area is strained and spasmed and tight over the back. Uh, you'll see often the dog or the cat um, not wanting to move very much. They're not jumping up really, and lots of times it can go under the radar because dogs and cats will n just naturally try to suppress signs of pain, discomfort, or illness. So it often just manifests as what a presentation we call ADR, ain't doing right. And lots of times I come up to the to the file sitting on the door for me to come in and see the patient, and basically the the, the description from the the history that the technician took is not doing right or 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 not self. Um, often the appetite is a little bit off, not wanting to move around very much. But but specifically, you know, in a lot of cases we're not talking about actual pain. Other times, every time a dog or cat is is picked up, they can yelp. Sometimes they'll just yelp for no reason at all if they just you know get up from a lying or sitting position. Uh, sometimes the pain is so intense that they're actually screaming. So we can see varying levels of discomfort. Um, and in more advanced cases where we're actually getting a, a serious impingement of uh, pressure on the spinal cord, we can also start to see neuromuscular dysfunction, uh, most commonly in the rear limbs. And that can range from anywhere from, you know, they kind of walk like a drunken sailor in the back legs to um, varying levels of partial paralysis to even complete paralysis. Of course, complete paralysis is a severe presentation, and that's one that uh, usually will spur the owner to have that pet seen as soon as possible. Um, so we're talking about a whole wide range of, of, of possible presentations here, and that's why you have to be careful if you know you have that sort of not-self presentation that's going on for a day or two and doesn't seem to be getting any better. You know, It's one of those things where when if you just kind of ignore the signs and wait for the dog or the cat to work it out, uh, things can get work, worse, and they can get worse rather rapidly. I've thought uncommon to see patients go from, well, yesterday he just wasn't himself and and uh, wasn't moving around much, you know, not eating all that much. I thought maybe you know he caught a bug or something, having a bad day, and uh, you know suddenly today he can't use his back legs. I mean that's how quickly these things can devolve. So we want to be very careful with intervertebral disc disease. So when they present to me, what do I do? Um, for one of the first things is I, I'm going to do a thorough physical examination because I don't I, I can't just put my you know look at the dog, 
read the history and say, okay, well, this must be a spinal case. No, I mean, there's a lot of reasons we can get that ain't doing right presentation. And um, I certainly have to do my due diligence in physical examination. So one of the common things that will that I will notice is I'm feeling over the back, and we're talking like usually somewhere in the thoracic spine, lumbar spine, getting back towards the tail. I will actually just gently applying pressure over the area. First off, appreciate a severe ten- tenseness in the apaxial muscles surrounding that area. Um, the apaxial muscles are the muscles that are on either side of the spine. And very often I'm eliciting a pain response. The, the, the dog or the cat will kind of drop to the table as I'm, as I'm just applying gentle pressure. And then when I take my reflex hammer, lots of times I'm getting this reflex that's not supposed to be there. When I gently tap with the triangular edge of my reflex hammer, there's not supposed to be a reflex over the back. Um, essentially when I do see a reflex, and sometimes it's a real spasmodic one, then that's pretty good evidence that I have a compressive disc injury on my hands because that reflex is an artificial one created by a compressive disc injury, and uh, we call that reflex paniculus. So um, that, that's one of the things that I'm looking for uh, when these cases present. When I am making my way back towards the back legs, what I do is start flipping the feet over. I'm trying, I'm testing, doing some neurological tests where. If I flip the feet over, they're supposed to flip right back. The dog or the cat don't even think about that. If they leave it knuckled over, then that's a sign that they are having some neurological trouble. So that means that we have a, a compressive disc injury that's just not, not just causing discomfort. At that point, we have a compressive disc injury that's causing neurological dysfunction to the back legs, to one or more back legs. And, and as I said, things can progress. Some of these animals come in uh, with dysfunction of the of, of the back legs, and even uh, cases of paralysis. So what do I do with these cases? Well, first and foremost, the, the main thrust is to relieve pain and to relieve muscle spasm and to, you know, set this dog on a course of decompression. Now, I will tell you in cases of complete paralysis where uh, I'm actually pinching the toes and there's not even feeling in those toes, those cases I'm referring out for surgery immediately because the the notion that these dogs or cats are going to recover for, by medical means is not a very good one. Uh, what I can offer in the office is typically a, a muscle relaxer. Usually I'll, I'll use diazepam and give it IV and then send it home orally. Diazepam is also known as Valium. It's a really nice muscle relaxer in dogs and cats. I like to use a steroid, uh, notably prednisolone. Often I'll start them off with a dexamethasone SP injection IV. And the powerful anti-inflammatory activity of, of, of that particular type of medication, a steroid, is often enough to decompress the, uh, an area because a lot of the compression of the spinal cord is not necessarily from the disc itself that's protruding, but the inflammation associated with the slippage of that disc. So when we can reduce that inflammation, we can often medically decompress the area get feeling or use back to the dog, get comfort back to the dog while it's, you know, scarring down that area. And, I, of course, I just said dog, but I also mean uh, this applies very much to cats as well. Um, and, and you hope that uh, in the period immediately following these injuries that some, some fibrous connective tissue could be laid down and the area is stabilized by the patient itself. Whether or not that happens depends on a few different things. Number one, What's the severity of the injury? Two, what's the individual healing capacity of each individual pet? Three, 
How well is the compliance of the owner? Are they giving the pills like I asked them to? Are they giving them at the right frequency I asked them to? Are they making sure that the animal is strictly rested for two weeks as I always prescribe for these cases? These are all factors which go into um, whether or not these patients will necessarily begin to recover and make strides toward being normal again. As I said, in cases of complete paralysis, I don't want to mess around. I am referring those to a board-certified surgeon as soon as possible if the owner is willing. Um, surgery for these cases is very similar to people. What they do is uh, what's called a decompressive surgery where they actually suck out the disc material that's encompassing the spinal cord. And you're not going to believe this, but with complete paralysis, we're talking complete paralysis, with surgery in the hands of an experienced good surgeon, we have recovery rates of 75%. 75% of dogs undergoing surgery that go in completely paralyzed, 75% of them will walk out of that hospital. And I think that's pretty remarkable. Um, in other cases where you know we're doing the steroid therapy, we're doing the rest, we're doing the muscle relaxer, uh, surgery, and, and, and we're just not quite getting that patient to where we want that patient to. They're still neuromotor dysfunction of the back legs. Uh, we're not completely paralyzed, but we're just not making you know significant headway. Well, eventually, if I refer those for surgery, we're talking about a 95% cure rate. So surgery, very successful. The downside, very expensive. Uh, the, the, our local referral uh, clinic right now is, you know, by the time you factor in the cost of the imaging, the MRI, to visualize the injured area. Remember, x-rays don't pick up uh, intervertebral discs. You really don't visualize them well on an x-ray. You really need an MRI or a CT scan to see the discs to properly identify the site of injury so you know where to target your incision to do the spinal surgery. By the time you factor in the imaging, the MRI or CT, uh, the hospitalization, the expertise of the surgeon, Blah 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 blah. We're talking somewhere between six and seven thousand dollars when it's all said and done. Let's face it; not everybody can fork out that kind of money. In fact, I would venture to say that probably more people than not are are not going to be able to do that, especially these days. So we have other options, and that's what I really wanted to let you folks know this evening. That yes, surgery is a great option when medicine isn't working out, but we have new modalities in the field of spinal injury care that can be alternatives to surgery. Now, as I said, if I have complete paralysis, no bones about it, I want you to go for surgery. I want I want that dog getting the best possible outcome and surger, surgical decompression, there's really no substitute for it. So I just want to be clear on that. I'm not advocating against surgery. I'm just saying for those people out there that don't have you know, six or seven grand to drop on their pet, uh, there's other less expensive modalities we can first try, and certainly less invasive ones. Um, so let's talk about what I've been doing these days. Uh, I have a what's called a therapy laser, a low-level therapy laser uh, in my office. And the therapy laser is there for any number of different functions. I like it for post-operative care. Uh, applying a low-level laser to an incision increases healing rates by 40%. If we have painful arthritic joints or we have previous sites of injury that uh, is causing osteoarthritis at an early onset, um, the laser can be very, very helpful in these cases. Uh, the, 
the mechanism by which it works is called photobiomodulation. And uh, I actually did a whole show on this uh, on my YouTube channel. And I would uh, encourage you to watch that show because it gets in a little bit more detail as to how and why the laser works. Really don't have time for that tonight, but photobiomodulation, you know, in a nutshell, reduces pain and inflammation, increases the rate of healing by uh, causing the body to bring in healing cells called fibroblasts. Uh, and and what we find is that in in these cases where we have clear neuromotor dysfunction uh, because of a back injury and or chronic pain associated with the injury, that uh, we're finding laser is increasingly a, a, a very legitimate modality and alternative to surgery. I had one particular case that sticks with me uh, very, very, very clearly, even though it was a couple of months ago. An Australian shepherd came in screaming in pain and also partially paralyzed in the rear limbs. Now, again, my first preference was to get these folks out the door for surgery. They did not have the money to do that. So as an alternative, I offered... Okay, you know, steroid, um, the uh, muscle relaxer, as I talked about, strict rest, and let's get this dog on a therapy laser right away. Now, this dog had already been on a steroid and diazepam from another veterinarian, so I inherited this case one week into treatment, and the dog was still suffering a great deal. So, you know, all I had from a medical standpoint was to continue, you know, the, the prednisolone, the steroid, as well as the diazepam, the muscle relaxer, and just add, you know, the the additional treatment modality that I had at my disposal, which was the therapy laser. Folks, by treatment four, by treatment four of a six treatment protocol over a three-week period, by treatment four, this dog walked out of my office as if no injury had ever occurred. It was remarkable. It was amazing. And uh, one of the best success stories I have ever seen since I got my therapy laser a couple of years ago. So um, if you find yourself in the predicament where you have a dog or a cat who has severe uh, uh, disc back injury and you do not have the money for surgery, inquire with your vet. Talk to your vet about the possibility of therapy laser. If he or she does not have one, look around. Uh, they're becoming increasingly common. Uh, I'm one of two clinics in my county that, that currently has a therapy laser. Now, when you factor in the fact that there's probably over 100 veterinary clinics in my county, maybe over 100 is an overguesstimation, but there's, there's got to be at least more than 50. I'm guessing somewhere around 100, but whatever the case, of those, only only two clinics have a therapy laser. So, you know, not everybody's bought into the idea, but uh, from my perspective, not from just from my clinical experience, but also from the statistical evidence that I picked up on continuing education. It was at veterinary conferences that I first began to learn of the laser and, and a lot of the success stories surrounding it. Um, it. It's definitely a good treatment modality that people should consider uh, for their pets with chronic uh, spinal disc disease. So, you know, that said, how do you recognize that your pet may have this issue? Well, like I said earlier, um, you pick up the pet, if it's a, a cat or a small dog, and they yelp and they do it more than once. Um, they're not wanting to move around very much. Lots of times you'll see they, they'll take a few steps and they'll sit, a few steps and they'll sit, a few steps and they'll sit. Um, in other cases, they will actually be chronically in pain. They'll be so stiff they don't want to move. Um, and then in, the, in some of the more advanced cases, you'll see uh, paralysis or partial paralysis of the back legs. Now, there are some cases if the injuries in the neck where front legs can be affected too. These cases where the neck is involved, we can get partial paralysis or paralysis in all four of the limbs because the 
injuries originating in the neck, and that's in front of the nerves that innervate. Uh, you know, basically further upstream is the best way to put it in the spinal cord. So in these cases also, we'll commonly see the pet does not want to lift up their head. They're kind of like holding their head low and very reluctant to even look up at you. They'll use their eyes but not actually lift their head. And that's one of the common things we'll see with neck injuries. So keep an eye out for that. Predisposing factors. And, and you know, this is an important one because lots of times these injuries happen. It's the fault of the owner. <laughs> Number one, obesity. I'm going to say that again. Number one, obesity. <laughs> the lion's share of cases of dogs and cats with back injuries are obese, fat animals. When you allow the degree of weight that is allowed to be put on some of these animals, you have a uh, horizontally standing creature where you could think of their spine as a tabletop. The more weight is on that abdomen, the more the belly is pulling down on that tabletop, and the more likely that that pet is going to slip a disc in its lifetime. Um, and it's so preventable, and it's so ridiculous, uh, the weight of some of these animals. It's just unnecessary, uh, and it, it's really, you know, the, the, the pet owners think it's funny, or some of them don't care. I heard one guy say one time, this will stick with me forever, if my dog dies, I'd rather he die happy and full <laughs> than lose any weight. And you know what? The dog did die uh, at, at the tender age of nine years old in a breed that should have lived to be you know, 12 to 14 on average, but he didn't die happy. Uh, he died because he was put to sleep because he could no longer walk anymore. He had blown out both his knees, had chronic uh, disc disease in his back, um, the quality of life was no longer there, and the anti-inflammatories and Pain relievers were no longer keeping up, and basically he let that dog eat itself to death. Um, so obesity, obesity, obesity. If your pet's obese, do you know you're, you're you're taking a huge risk, among other things, but you're 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 really risking the possibility for back injury. Second risk factor is confirmation. So our elongated breeds tend to have a greater tendency to have these problems. Basset hounds, dachshunds. Welsh corgis, even some beagles can be kind of long in their conformation. Um, any dogs that are kind of shaped like that, uh, where, their, where their torso is really long, um, are at greater risk for these injuries. You throw in obesity to these dogs, their, their risk is, is infinitesimally higher than your average dog. Conformation and obesity predilections are not a good combination. In cats, Persians. Persians love to blow discs in their back. Persian cats are an orthopedic nightmare. Among many other orthopedic problems they have, they are also very predisposed to intervertebral disc injuries, and cats will act very similarly to dogs. Um, again, yelping when picked up. Uh, a cat that used to be real spry jumping up on things uh, suddenly doesn't do that anymore, and the treatment modalities really are the same for cats. So everything I talked about really applies to cats, and if you got a Persian really pay attention and look out for any signs of not just spinal disc disease, but also uh, orthopedic disease in general, because uh, they're just not conformed very well. Uh, a lot of bad breeding going on among, among the Persian breeders, and, and unfortunately it's translated into an orthopedic nightmare. So the, the other common presentation I see uh, in, in dogs with regard to spine is called fibrocartilaginous embolism. This we most commonly see in medium to large breed dogs. I would say most commonly large breed dogs. Can't say that I've seen this in a cat. 
but I'm sure eventually I will do this long enough that I will see it in a feline. But uh, before I get into fibrocartilaginous embolism, basically a stroke of the back, I just want to get into Mandy from Palm Bay, Florida's question. And this is an interesting one, folks, because this one's an eye-opener, and I'd like you all to really listen to this one. I had my dog neutered at a so-called discount clinic. I figured that for a minor procedure like neutering, going to the discount route was an okay place to save some money. Well, since the surgery yesterday, my dog has been crying in pain, and the clinic where I had it done would not dispense any pain medication. They said they did not believe in it because neutering is a minor procedure and does not require pain medication. Yet my dog is obviously painful. Since they would not give my dog pain medication, I called my regular vet for some. And he refused without an examination, which I would have to pay full price for, plus the price of any pain medication he would dispense. Is there a medical reason for this, or is my vet just being stubborn because I chose to have the dog the, have the neuter done elsewhere? At any rate, my dog is in pain, and no one seems to want to give my dog something for relief. Okay, well, here's a lesson well learned. You went to a discount clinic because you thought you'd save some money. Um kind of going on the notion that, okay, well, maybe I won't get what I pay for here, and I'll save some money. Well, in this case, you did indeed save some money, but you also saved it in the form of not getting any pain relief for your dog. Now, I don't consider a neuter a major procedure, but do I consider it a pain-free one? Absolutely not. I will guarantee you that if I were neutered tomorrow, I'd be sore afterwards, probably for a few days. That's why on all of our estimates that we give to owners, we include actually five days of pain management, not just one or two days. Those patients receive a preoperative injection of morphine. Uh, we assume, guess what? It's a castration. There's an incision. It's going to be sore. There's ligatures. We're tying off the testicular artery vein and nerve. Uh, and, and as a result, there'll be some soreness at the ligature sites. You know, um, It's preposterous to not want to give pain medicine for these procedures, and it's absolutely preposterous to... Preposterous, bleh, <laughs> Sorry, I can't speak English right now. Ridiculous. <laughs> Change the word altogether. To uh to not dispense pain medication. So, you know, Mandy, you got what you paid for, so now you have issues with your regular vet because he wants to see the dog before dispensing pain medication. Well, guess what? He's right. And no, he's not being a stickler and he's not being a stubborn jerk because you chose chose somebody else to get, to have the neuter done. Um he is actually following an ethical protocol. For a procedure that was done by somebody else, he cannot ethically dispense pain medication for it until he's actually had a look at the site. He has to make sure that there's no mitigating factors. Is there hemorrhage? Is there bruising? Is there um, infection? We don't know these things. And, and if I were in his position, Mandy, I would do the same thing. I would say, guess what? You chose to have a neuter somewhere else. You want pain management. Okay, if they won't give it to you, you have to reestablish the relationship here. I need to look at the incision. I have to examine the dog. I need to take its temperature. I need to do all these things. I can't just dispense pain medication. Um, and, and that's unfortunately the risk that you run uh, when, you, when you choose these discount clinics. I can't say it enough. You get what you pay for. Um, and, it, and in this case, no, your vet's not being stubborn. Uh, you know, I would, I would be demanding the same thing. I'd want that dog to get pain relief, and he's offering pain relief. He's just, you know demanding that there's a visit beforehand. There's nothing wrong with that. That's completely normal. All right. Avoid those discount clinics, folks. They, they You really don't get what you pay for. They cut corners, and Mandy's experience is uh, case in point. So let's get back to fibrocartilaginous embolism quickly. Uh, basically, as I explained earlier, 
The dog usually is suffering from some degree of bad back. There's been some back strains. Often there's there's already, you know, perhaps some sites of partial herniation. So the discs aren't in good shape, those cartilaginous discs. And disc material can fleck off, can just kind of chip off from these diseased discs. And the discs, the disc material that, that gets chipped off can end up getting lodged in a blood vessel, in particular a blood vessel that nourishes a, a section of spinal cord. So in a lot of these dogs, you get just a sudden onset of, of either partial or complete paralysis, um, usually in the back legs. And the interesting thing about this, though, is that the reflexes are not present and there's no pain. You could crank on that back till, you know, the end of tomorrow and you're not going to elicit any pain because you know what? It's not from a herniation of a disc. While the discs are not healthy, um, it's not a compressive injury, right? So we're looking at disuse of the rear limbs. Uh, however, it's not a compressive injury. And uh, generally when I'm not getting, I'm not eliciting any pain whatsoever or any of that paniculous reflex I talked about over the back, yet there's paralysis in the rear limbs, one of the first things I'm thinking is fibrocartilaginous embolism. I see it most commonly in Labrador retrievers. saw one in a standard poodle recently. I've seen it in a Doberman Pinscher, um, usually big dogs. We're talking about large breed dogs. Giant breed dogs, I don't quite see it so much. And, you know, like the Danes and the St. Bernards and those humongous dogs. Um, it's usually just a, you know, a standard large breed dog, a Weimaraner, that, that kind of dog. Um, and uh, it's one of those things where it's a little bit frustrating because, yes, we can diagnose them, but in the end, even if we get all the uh, great imaging in the world with MRI, CT, or what have you, we can locate it, pinpoint it. Uh, we have our suspicions, but there's not a whole lot we can do about it. Uh, what can happen in these cases is a, a certain percentage will find enough collateral innervation, uh, find new pathways in the spinal cord to circumvent uh, the area that has been damaged by the, the, the sudden lack of blood supply. And these cases will either spontaneously make a full recovery or at least a partial recovery to where uh, the ability to walk is good enough to have quality of life. Other cases don't respond at all. Um, on the advice of a neurologist, though, in some of these cases, or in most of these cases, I do treat them with a steroid because while we can't really save a dead section of spinal cord, we can reduce inflammation associated with the area immediately surrounding that damage area of spinal cord. So a steroid can be mildly helpful in some cases. Um, but also, it, these cases, I, I also still like the laser because um, I, I, while I, I still don't know if there's any clinical data behind this particular accident and the use of the laser, my clinical experience has been that I have seen some improvement. Um, and one case in particular where I was... It was you know, fairly convincing evidence that it was a fibrocartilaginous embolism, you know, I'm, I'm sure some of you are thinking, well, you said a certain amount of these cases will get better no matter what you do. And that's absolutely true. But there was one particular case where we sort of did the waiting game, didn't do the laser right away. And this was about six months ago. And uh, the, the patient came in to me two weeks later and there was just no improvement. I did the steroid as well. And, and there was just no, no, no spontaneous um, improvement whatsoever. And the owner said to me, well, what now? You said, you know, this may get better or it may not. Uh, we haven't gotten any better. Is this the way, you know, he lives for the rest of his life? 
And at that point, I said, well, you know, I can't tell you with any certainty that the laser will help, but it won't hurt anything to try. It's certainly not nearly as expensive as any surgery would be. Um, so, you know, rather than do nothing, why not give it a shot? I can't tell you if it'll help at all. Well, you know, this particular dog, uh, by the end of the laser regimen, wasn't back to normal, but I'll tell you this. The dog was, I would say, near, I would say 75% better uh, than when it had presented to me. Uh, and there we were, you know, doing the waiting game and the steroid, no improvement, did the laser, 75% better. Now that dog to this day still comes into me. You know, I mean, uh, I saw him just a couple weeks ago for a yearly. He is a Doberman Pinscher, and he's a lovely dog. And he comes in, he's got kind of a little bit of a drunken sailor's gait, not too bad though, uh, whereas previously he nearly couldn't support his weight in the the rear limbs. That was pre-laser. So I think what I'm going to be finding likely uh, in the future, there's going to be some statistical data at the university level of study that's going to confirm uh, the benefit of laser in these cases. Uh, and uh, even if I never see that, I go by my own clinical experience, I'm still going to recommend trying it. Okay. Uh, and then the last uh, spinal injury I want to talk about, it's not really an injury, it's an inherited degenerative disorder. Um, I'm mentioning it here tonight because I do see um, I do see this a few times a year. It's not the most common thing. You know, it's not like the back injuries or the the embolisms where, you know, these are things I'm seeing on a regular basis. But, um, you know, I would say three to five cases a year I will see confirmed. That's degenerative myelopathy. As I mentioned earlier in the broadcast, degenerative myelopathy is a degenerative disorder of the the spine where from near the tail base moving forward, the spinal cord just starts to disappear essentially. And as a result, all the structures that would normally innervate behind it start to become uh, unable to work. Starting with the rear limbs, they'll just see, start seeing some knuckling over. And again, no pain in the back. You know, that's that's one of the one of the hallmarks is there, there is no pain. Um, but it's more gradual than you know, fibrocartilaginous embolism is not you know gradual. There's no pain associated with that one either. But it's all of a sudden, boom, paralyzed. You know, one minute normal, one minute. Not. Degenerative myelopathy is like, okay, you get a little knuckle over here and a knuckle over there, and now we're swaying a bit, a couple weeks into it, and now instead of swaying, you know, really slow and difficult uh, to get up, uh, falling over when trying to urinate or defecate, uh, that's degenerative myelopathy. And unfortunately, um, there's not a lot we can do to treat it. We can slow it down. Uh, there's a particular veterinarian, a neurologist at University of Florida by the name of Dr. Clemens, who's done some pretty cutting-edge work on degenerative myelopathy, and he's put together this whole protocol um, that can uh, very, it can be instrumental in slowing the disease. Uh, as far as stopping it, no, nothing really stops it. Uh, it's a it's a battle you're going to lose eventually. Uh, so the best we can hope for is to extend quality for as long as we can using Dr. Clemens' protocol. And uh, you know, hope that hope that we can really slow the process, um, you know, by the by the the pet and the owner some time together. But that's pretty much uh, spinal disease in a nutshell. Basically, again, I, my goal tonight wasn't to try to make you a veterinarian on the spot and able to diagnose and treat these things. Certainly, you know, that's not something that uh, we're recommending. But I, I want you to understand the things that can go wrong. I want you to understand how to recognize them. 
And I want you to know that there are options available to you, and not all of them are super-duper costly. Um, I talked about therapy laser quite a bit because I have one in my office, but uh, as far as intervertebral disc disease and fibrocartilaginous embolism is concerned, um, a lot of these cases respond favorably to, uh, I was going to say, acupuncture therapy, but also chiropractic uh, adjustment in the hands of uh, an experienced and well-educated practitioner. I don't like sending my patients to a quote-unquote chiropractor who's not a veterinarian. Um, I don't want a non-veterinarian handling any of my patients. I I want a veterinarian who does, who is certified in chiropractic uh, or, you know, has done extensive case work uh, over and above veterinary school and has a lot of experience. And, And so be careful with the chiropractic because in the wrong hands, it, it could end up being worse. But I have I've seen a number of cases do well with chiropractic, with acupuncture. Um, sometimes what we're talking about is an integrative approach. You know, we do some of the Western stuff, the prednisone, the muscle relaxer, but at the same time we're throwing in some therapy laser, weekly acupuncture treatments, maybe a chiropractic adjustment here or there. Um, the modalities are there; they're available. So don't ne- don't necessarily get too discouraged if you're in the midst of your pet having a difficult case of of a back injury, uh, and you know you can't fork out the six or seven thousand dollars to necessarily have a disc surgery. Know there's other options available to you. Ladies and gentlemen, have a great evening. Thank you very much for joining me. As always, Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky in line at the deli, I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.